first reading is from Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. Then after his, that is Abraham's, return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. We're continuing in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all that she had to live on. I'm going to pray for Debbie. Lord Jesus, thank you for Debbie. Thank you for all that you've put on her heart, Lord. And as she opens up the word and as she, um, in a way, gives it out like bread to us, Father, I pray that... Lord, our hearts will be open to receive it, Lord, that we will eat of your word this morning. And, uh, Lord, that you will anoint her as she speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I know there's been lots of talking and information, lots of words already this morning. So don't worry, I'm not going to speak for long. I'm not going to share for long. But I do want us to receive something of the life of God from these passages and these stories that have just been read to us. So you might want to have open in front of you the story in Genesis 14 to start with because I'm going to draw your eye to some bits of it in just a moment. But as we're thinking about giving this morning, and as as that's been our theme, I thought I would start by telling you a bit of a story or a bit of a testimony from my own life. Because as I was preparing this, I was thinking how money gets this funny kind of grip on our hearts sometimes, doesn't it? It certainly can do. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that moment where you feel like, hmm, there's a bit of a, there's a power somehow in money, in re- wealth, in riches that I can feel affecting me. And I remember kind of the first time that I was really confronted with that in myself. And it goes back many years when I was probably about um, 18 or 19 and I was helping out with the youth group, um, the church youth club, in fact. We used to open up a particular um, hall and invite uh, 
young people from the church would come, but also local young people who perhaps weren't part of church would come in and uh, there'd be games and there'd be a kind of a God slot and a talk. And I was helping out as an older youth myself with this youth club. And my job that week was to be on the tuck shop. I was in charge of the tuck shop. And we had a, a nice array of chocolate and sweets and crisps and whatever else on display at the tuck shop. And the young people would come with their pocket money and, and buy things. And I remember this one lad came and all his friends had been queuing up before him and they'd all bought like, you know, their chocolate or their crisps or their sweets. And then he got to the front of the queue and he just looked at me and I just looked at him and I thought, he hasn't got any money, has he? (laughs) But he was looking at me very hopefully. And I knew that he um, was not somebody who had lots of money in his home and in his life. Um, And so probably his mum hadn't been able to send him with any pocket money that week. And he just sort of looked and I said, do you want me to buy you something? And he said, yes. So I bought him something and I bought him a Mars bar. Now at the time, you might remember this time, it was a long time ago, and some of you have heard me tell this story before, but at the time Mars Bar were doing this thing, a bit like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, where they were giving away a gold ingot, yeah, a gold block, does anyone remember that? If you open, some of you do, if you opened your Mars Bar wrapper, you might find a gold thing on the inside of the wrapper that told you, you had won this bar of gold, like real gold, you know, a pretty good prize. And uh, I remember, anyway, I bought this Mars bar for this kid and he stood by the other side of the hatch and he ripped it open and he just dropped the whole wrapper into the bin, kind of like that in one go and then put the whole thing pretty much in his mouth. And as the wrapper sort of dropped into the bin, I remember thinking it was sort of glinting with this kind of glittery, kind of goldish sort of colour, but I didn't really register with me. I just, you know, I kind of just, we just moved on. The rest of the club happened and, um, you know, we tied it away. Everything was ending and I got home that night and I was reflecting on the evening and all of a sudden I was like, hang on a minute, that gold, that, there was gold in that wrapper. Like, what does that mean? It means there's those ingots, there's a gold bar. And the feeling, this feeling that flooded me In that moment, I remember it was like, it was anger, injustice. I was like, that's my golden god. I paid for his Mars bar. It said below belongs to me. I deserve to get it. I was thinking in my head, how can I go down to the rubbish bags at the building and go through them and check whether I really did see that. Maybe I did see it. Maybe I didn't. And this feeling just filled me. And I remember the power of that feeling. This feeling of like, I want that gold ingot. (laughs) I want it. It's mine, rightfully. And as this feeling filled me up, I remember then the Lord really did speak to me quite suddenly and quite clearly. And he was just like, Debbie, why do you even think that that is yours? (laughs) Why does that even belong? Why do you think it belongs to you? Even if it was a gold ingot wrapper. I don't know to this day whether it was or whether it wasn't. But even if it was, why do you think that belongs to you? Why wouldn't you want that young lad to have it more than you want to take it for yourself? His family needs it more than you do right now. And I suddenly just felt so ashamed of that, this thing that had risen up inside, the kind of loss and the injustice of not getting, not grabbing, not having And there's something about that, isn't there? When we come to this whole area of giving, we realize that there is a spirit out there in the world that is all about grabbing and getting and wanting and grasping and having. 
And the spirit of Jesus and his kingdom is so different. It's about giving and releasing and giving away. And you know, probably the most famous or the most well-known verse in the whole of the Bible describes that giving heart of our God, the generous character of our God, that generosity is his very definition. You know the verse I mean? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. And I think that that verse sums up, it reminds us, it imprints on our hearts and our minds, doesn't it? The giving nature of the God that we serve. God is a great giver. He gave us the most precious thing that there is in the universe. He gave us his own son to die for us on the cross. And if we're followers of him, and if we're people who are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then we are going to find that we need to be givers too. And that's why I've called our time this morning kingdom givers. We're going to be givers because God is a giver, not a grabber and a taker. So why did we read this kind of slightly crazy and obscure story in the Old Testament in Genesis 14 about this mysterious character that some of you may never have heard of called Melchizedek? It doesn't come up very often in the Bible. You might be wondering, why are we starting with these verses? Well, because here in these verses, in the book of Genesis, this is our first explicit introduction of the concept of God's kingdom. In the Bible, God's kingdom and what God's kingdom looks like, as opposed to the earthly kingdoms, the human kingdoms, the empire building that goes on in the world that we're used to and that we're familiar with. And I want to remind you, as we think about this story, of the New Testament definition of the kingdom of God. It comes up in Romans chapter 14 verse 17, and we are told the kingdom of God, it's not about eating and drinking, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what this kingdom is about. If we are kingdom givers, then we are going to be those who carry something of the kingdom about us and give it away, and it's all about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And at the heart of this story, right back in the Old Testament, thousands of years before those words were even written, at the heart of this story, we have a special kind of king who's representing a very different kind of kingdom. And there are kings all over the place in this chapter. And if you read um, the opening verses of Genesis chapter 14, you'll see there are all kinds of kings warring with one another. There's five on one side, four on another, and they're battling for territory. They're battling for resources, battling for power. And Abram, who will come to be called Abraham, he's kind of caught up in the middle of these warring kings and kingdoms. And then suddenly, out of nowhere almost, steps in Melchizedek. So who is he? Who is this Melchizedek? 
Well, whoever he is, he gives us an incredible picture of Jesus right here in the Old Testament, all those years before Jesus was born. Why do I say that? Well, there's a few things going to come up on the screen behind me. First of all, we're told that Melchizedek is a king and a priest. And normally in Israel, you couldn't be both a king and a priest. They were two separate roles, a bit like being the queen and the prime minister all at once. It doesn't really work like that. You can't really do it. And it's the same in Israel. But here we have someone who is acting as a king and a priest. And actually the Bible shows us that those two roles come together in Jesus. When Jesus comes in the New Testament, he is the great example of the one who is a king and a priest who fulfills completely and beautifully and perfectly those roles. But we have a little preview, a little glimpse of that in Melchizedek here. He's also called the king of peace because the king of Salem, that word Salem, it's like the word shalom. It's the same word. It's kind of Salem is the place that becomes Jerusalem a bit later on um, as the names change. And shalom, you know, means peace. The king of Salem means the king of peace. And then his name, Melchizedek, that's Hebrew for the words king of righteousness. So we've now got not only a king and a priest all in one, but a king of peace and a king of righteousness And already I'm starting to remember our definition, our New Testament definition of the kingdom. Righteousness, peace. And what's the third one? Joy. And that's what exactly what happens. What comes straight after Melchizedek is introduced, it says, He blessed him. Blessed be Abraham and blessed be God most high. Blessing is all about joy and the beauty of the joy of the kingdom. Already we've got a little picture forming of our New Testament kingdom. King of peace, king of righteousness, releasing joy and blessing. And a bit later on in the verses, no, in verse 18, we find Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and offers it to Abraham, just like Jesus offered his disciples at the Last Supper, the bread and the wine as a symbol of his death and resurrection to come. An amazing little glimpse there of that sharing of life with Abraham. The bread and the wine points to Jesus who was to come. And finally, we're told explicitly in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is associated and connected with Melchizedek. He is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, it says, and which is a quote from Psalm 110. So, and the reason that the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is like Melchizedek or Melchizedek points us to Jesus is that Melchizedek seems to kind of come out of nowhere. He has no genealogy. He has no history, no family, no context, no, nothing written about him before he arrives. And therefore, he's a picture for the guy who was writing Hebrews. He's a picture of an eternal kind of person, somebody who comes perhaps from heaven and not from the earth. And so he says, Jesus is like that. He's a picture of Jesus. So we have a very different kind of king 
in Melchizedek, being described from all these warring kings and kingdoms around him at the beginning of the story. He's a king that looks like Jesus. But we also have a different kind of kingdom that he's bringing and that he is introducing to Abram. So just think about the story for a moment. We're told that Abram has just won a great victory with his men against a group of four kings under a guy called Chedorlaomer. So he's the one who's kind of leading the charge there. And he had taken captive Abram's nephew, Lot, and all of Lot's people and all of Lot's tribe and and all of his riches and all of his resources. He'd taken them as spoils of battle. And Abraham, therefore, thinks, well, I'm going to sort this out. And he goes to attack those four kings, and he wins the battle, and he takes back Lot out of captivity and his household. And so now what's happening is that one of the other armies that Chedorlaomer was fighting with, the army of the king of Sodom, um, which was where Lot was living, actually, at the time, he sets out to meet Abraham. Probably, it seems, what he's planning to do is do broker some kind of deal with Abraham to get back some of the plunder and the captives that this Chedorlaomer has taken from him, from the king of Sodom. Make sense? So he's coming to Abraham to get back because he knows Abraham has just rescued Lot and probably taken all the rest of the spoils as well. And he thinks, well, I want to get my spoils back from where they were taken from me. And who knows? It's possible, isn't it, that if that deal hadn't worked out, that that king of Sodom was probably preparing to fight Abraham for it, to get his people and his spoils back. But before the king of Sodom actually meets Abram, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, steps in. He gets in between them and he intervenes. And he pours out this blessing and worship as he meets with Abraham. And suddenly, it's like the whole tone of the story changes. And instead of it all being about deals and alliances and payoffs and plunder and riches and battles and stuff changing hands, instead of it being about fighting and claiming and getting one up on each other and power plays, suddenly it becomes about a flow of blessing and worship and joy that is being released. And it takes us back again, doesn't it, to our New Testament definition of Jesus' kingdom. It's a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. And I can see that righteousness and that peace and that joy being introduced to us here in this Old Testament story. And in the middle of it all, Abraham shows us what it means, therefore, to be a kingdom person in that New Testament-looking kingdom experience. He shows us what it means and how we can respond in the kingdom of Jesus, you and me, as we enjoy it today. And this is what we can see as we look at Abraham and as we look at this story. Kingdom people are going to be those who look for encounters with Jesus. In the midst of it all and the argy-bargy of the world and the power plays in the empire building of the world around us and the politics in the 
classroom or in your workplace or with your colleagues or you know you know the stuff the argy bargy power plays that we live amongst all the time in our world it is rife with it and it is easy to just go along with it and get sucked in but in the midst of all of that no we are looking for encounters with Jesus because we are kingdom people we're going to do it differently we're going to respond differently just like Melchizedek steps in to the scene We are going to be people who keep Jesus' death and resurrection central to our worship at all times, central to us looking for blessing from God. We are going to lift up the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what it means to be kingdom people, just like Melchizedek lifted up the bread and the wine and kept it at the heart of that worship. We are going to be people who trust in Jesus above all else to empower us to overcome the enemy. We're not trusting in our own strength. We're not trusting in the world's way. We're looking to Jesus. Lord Jesus, help me overcome the enemy in my life, the enemy of my soul, Satan himself, who tries to trip us up and bind us up and keep us locked in sin and slavery. We're going to look to Jesus to be the one who sets us free. And then we can see that tithing, giving of 10% of our resources, this is what Abraham does in that moment. Tithing is an appropriate response in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus. Tithing and giving and investing in God's work and in God's ways and in God's values and in God's kind of kingdom instead of the kingdoms of this world. When we pay money into the world systems, we're kind of investing in that and it works in a whole different way by a whole different structure, by a whole load of different principles and rules. It's about taking and grabbing and getting and having and making it me and building myself up. And that's the stuff we invest in as we live in in the world but as kingdom people we want to make an investment all the time in something different something of righteousness and peace and joy something that looks like Jesus and that's why Abraham responds with this heart and says here's my tithe a whole tenth goes to this different kind of king and this different kind of kingdom And as you read right through to the end of the story here with Abraham, you'll find that his heart attitude is revealed even more fully because he refuses to take resources off the king of Sodom. He refuses, he says, to make himself rich by taking from man. He's looking to God to provide his needs. It's an amazing verse, that he, amazing statement he makes in verse 23. I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing, he says, because my heart is to receive my provision from the Lord. And finally, right at the end of those verses, in verse 24, Abraham says, I'll take nothing except what the young men have eaten, the people with him have been feeding, and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share, he says. And that's the final thing I wanted to point out here, is that he didn't, Abraham didn't, in his response to God, he didn't impose that on his allies and those who were with him. This was his own heart response, came out of his own heart to invest in Jesus and his kingdom
And I want to just close um, with a few words about that last story that Leslie read to us. Because right there in that Old Testament story of Melchizedek and Abraham, this kingdom experience is seen. And we see Abraham's response of giving, of tithing first and foremost. And then we see that fuller heart that says, my heart is for the Lord and his riches and not the earthly riches. And so I want us to think about what Jesus says about that poor widow in Mark chapter 12. I want us to notice three things as we close. First of all, notice in that story, how Jesus is more interested in how we give than how much we give. It says Jesus was watching how they were putting their offerings into the treasury. He wasn't watching how much they were putting into the treasury. He was watching how, because the heart and the attitude of our giving is what he's really interested in. Second thing to notice, well, how did that widow give that she was so praised by Jesus? We can see that she gave with love, by faith, and sacrificially. I say with love and by faith because we know it was all she had to live on. But something in her said, I care more about God's work and God's purposes going forward than I even care about my own situation and my own life. She must have really loved the Lord. She must have really loved his way in this world. She must have really had faith that if she gave to him, he would look after her. She gave with love, sacrificially and by faith. And finally... Notice what Jesus says about her. He said that her offering was worth more than all the rest of those offerings put together. It was more powerful in God's hands than all those wealthy donors and what they gave. Why? Because it wasn't really the money that she gave. It was her heart, her life and her whole self. And that is the real tool in the Lord's hand. And if we remember in all of our giving that what we are actually giving to the Lord, it's ourselves, it's me, it's my life, it's my time, it's my availability, it's my energy, it's my prayers, it's my love, it's my hospitality, it's my kindness, it's my goodness towards others. It's, that's what I'm giving here, Lord. This is a symbol of it. That's what I'm giving to you. As we do that, that is a powerful tool in the Lord's hands and mighty things for his kingdom can be accomplished. So I want to pray as we close. And I'm going to pray two things for us. Maybe you just want to respond in your own heart to one or other or both of these things. So first of all, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for what we see of your kingdom in your word. And it is a beautiful kingdom and it's different from this world. And Lord, I want to pray if there are any here, Lord, who are prompted now by your Holy Spirit in this area of tithing or of regular giving to you, 
that decision to give regularly. I pray, Lord, by your spirit, speak to each one, Lord. Prompt us and enable us to do it with love, by faith, and sacrificially as you lead and guide. Help us, Lord, to make those decisions, to invest in you and your kingdom, even before anything else. And Lord Jesus, I want to pray for all of us, Lord, who want to know our hearts being released from the bondage of riches and money and the world's ways in these things. Lord, deliver us from the grabbing spirit that we all know the feel of in our hearts and lives. Please, Lord, deliver us from those things and help us to be a people who trust you and who love you and who give and who live out of that flow of offering our lives to you in all kinds of different ways day by day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let your